Hey everybody, welcome back to Elixir Mix. I'm your host, Alan Wyma. Today, the other panelists are off, and I'm the only one with our very special guest, Zach Daniel, the creator of Ash Framework. Hello, Zach. Nice to have you on. It's good to be here. Thanks. I'm frequently surprised at how many companies are running their apps in production without any way of knowing when things go wrong, or who are running them in production and not really having a way of knowing where things are slowing down. That's why I recommend that people use a service like AppSignal. AppSignal plugs into your application seamlessly, whether you're using Rails or Phoenix or something else, and provides you a way of knowing when things go wrong, when things are going slow, and what other problems your application may be facing so that you can fix them and provide a seamless user experience for those who are using your app. So whether you're starting a new app or working on an existing app, you should check out AppSignal and see how it can work for you. Go to AppSignal.com. That's A-P-P-S-I-G-N-A-L.com. Yeah, so you've been working on Ash for a long time. How many years? Has it been four or five years now? Maybe longer? That's actually a really good question. I, I think it's only been like three I'm, I'm going to go like find out when the first commit was, but I think it was, I think it's been at least, at least three years. Only three. I feel like it's been longer because it's been like, I feel like forever. I don't know. It, it, maybe it's just in my head. Yeah. I mean, well, I've been talking about it a lot and there's, you know, we tweet about it a lot and there's like there lots of releases and that kind of thing. But I mean, you, you could be right. I'm kind of time blind. Like ask anybody. I just sort of code like ABC always be coding. And then I have no idea how much time has passed or like how long a year was or anything like that. Yeah, I just remember looking at a, a, a while ago and I was like, this is really strange. Like, I, I don't know, I felt like it was just not compatible with Phoenix, but I, I think I'm wrong, right? Because it's not like it's not compatible. It's just like a different way of writing kind of your business logic, I think, right? It's, I, mean, I don't know, maybe you can help to kind of give an introduction because uh, I'm not really sure how to to even call it then it is called Ash Framework. So it's some kind of framework. Yeah, so it's a general purpose framework. And so it's sort of, it's not a web framework or like a data oriented framework or an ORM or anything like that, right? But the idea is kind of as you said, right? Like it's 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 perfectly compatible with Phoenix or Ecto or really like anything. It's a way to organize your code and to structure your code and patterns that allow for like sort of tools to sort of use your application on your behalf and and structures for to sort of connecting the various pieces of of things that you have right so the the important like the sort of crucial part of ash is that resources all have consistent interfaces right so i can write a tool that given a resource and an action right can figure out okay well how do i call this action what are the types of all of the inputs? What's required, right? And then what it gets back when it attempts to call set action is like a consistent response, right? So validation errors that are, you know, error messages are consistent. And so what that means is we have, you know, packages like Ash GraphQL and Ash JSON API. And so you have your resource, your sort of domain object or whatever. And again, a resource can model sort of anything. It can model like a dispatch to an external API or it can go to a database or it could even just return some stuff, not actually do anything. It doesn't have to have any side effects. But then you can put that up over Ash GraphQL. So you have a GraphQL, you have a JSON API. Somebody else wrote Ash Thrift, which you know does, uses Apache Thrift, and that's like a sort of RPC thing. And so all of these tools that we build can know how to work with your resources. And no matter what they do under the hood, you can put them up over any API or, or that kind of thing. So it's all about that consistent interface and that declarative pattern. Yeah, the weird thing is like you have this attributes block Right. And in there, you can really describe. So you're basically kind of doing another way of doing like a schema that you would do in Ecto. Is this actually using Ecto underneath 
or is it not? Yeah, so ASH resources as a sort of matter of convenience also define an ectoschema for every resource. And this helps for a lot of different things. Specifically, it helps when you have a different, you know, we have a data layer that is implemented on top of an ecto adapter. That means that you can just sort of like use the resource directly with that adapter. You don't have to figure anything special out. And it also helps for like sort of escape hatches, where if you define a resource that uses Azure Postgres and that you can just say like, you know, myapp.repo.all on the resource and you'll it'll read the table, right? So it's sort of a compatibility piece that causes us to have to do to do that because we, we want to just sort of make all the different tools play nicely together as much as possible. Yeah. Also, I mean, are you doing a little bit of yak shaving too? Because you also came up with something called Sparkle. It's a DSL language or a way to Yeah, it's yourself. called Spark. Yep. Spark, so, yeah. yeah. So the idea with Spark, there's actually a lot, there is a significant amount of tooling around the DSLs that we have built for Ash because the way that you, when you write Ash extensions, you can, you have a way to say like add options to the DSL. And it's all done in such a way that you don't have to actually write the sort of, you don't have to write DSL macros yourself. There's this declarative thing. So you basically pass in and you say, you know, I'm an extension and I have these options with these types. And the underlying tooling will add that to the DSL and support it. And there's a lot more that goes into that than sort of what it seems like. And so just for that reason, we built, we separated out the Ash stuff into a package called Spark to basically allow other people to sort of get that benefit for DSLs they might want to write. Like maybe they don't want to use Ash but they also don't want to handwrite their DSLs. They want to use a tool that already has thought about that. And like, what you get is like any Spark DSL is extensible in the same way that Ash resources is extensible or the Ash DSLs are extensible. And you also get, it ships with an Elixir Sense plugin that provides autocomplete for your DSL. So it'll like, you know, show all the options available at any given point and the, on the documentation for that option. And so sort of in that way, it's actually like, it's quite convenient to build DSLs with it. So we separate it out. That's pretty cool. I can imagine that people would be using this. I like the fact that you you have that plugin that just makes life so much easier for people. Yeah, it's broken right now because of some stuff. Like there's some, it's broken right now for most people using VS Code because of like the release cadence. So there's some issues with like with the the latest release of, it's complicated with the Elixir Sense is dependent on by Elixir LS on a GitHub hash. And that hash is not compatible with like the latest version of, it's just a whole thing. So I'm hoping that, I've made some changes and on the next release of Elixir LS, we should see that all fixed sort of for good, but we'll see. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot underneath the umbrella of Ash, right? I mean, I don't know how you guys are going to support all this stuff, right? So I believe underneath your cloud, you have some type of REST API, I believe. You should, at least if, if not, I'm just taking a guess. For sure, I've seen GraphQL. You have some type of ETS one, I believe. Obviously, I think I already said Postgres. You have a lot that's underneath your umbrella. Like, it's crazy, like, how much you guys are supporting. Are you just trying to hit every kind of vertical you can think of that people would be looking into, like, at least, like, a 80, 20, or season mark a 90, or 95, 5 at this point? Kind of. I mean, I'm not really, I'm not really developing for, like, the sort of abstract, like, what people might want type thing. When we originally, you know, the core of Ash was designed to support these extensions. And the, the idea is just like, as myself and other Ash users want X, Y, and Z, it makes sense for us to agree upon extensions that, that do these sort of idiomatically. And it is kind of a lot to support, but in the same way, like, the, we take the philosophy of building on top of other good tools sort of already, right? So Ash GraphQL is implemented with Absinthe. So it, it builds out an absinthe blueprint of the API. And Ash JSON API builds a spec compliant 
JSON API. So we use the JSON API, you know, sort of proper spec and which, you know, like JSON colon API. It's kind of a weird term because it means both things. But there is a spec called JSON API that is has all these has the entire sort of behavior specified. And so we didn't have to figure out like, oh, how do we want to do it? It's like, no, we're spec compliant. And so kind of in that way, like it's a lot, it can be a lot to support, but at the same time, it's like we lean on other better tools whenever we get the chance. And that's the same with Ash Postgres, right? In Ash Postgres, to run your queries, we build an Ecto query. So it's kind of at the end of the day, it's like most like most of the hard work is there, is done for them, or is done by Ecto. And we do the sort of transformation work to figure out what query to run. That could also happen for, I mean, since you're using Ecto and ETH, you can probably basically support anything else besides Postgres, no? Like MySQL yeah, or whatever we, that Ecto supports? Yeah, so we're going to have to do, we're going to have to, it's a bit more complicated than that, but we will be able to, it's going to take a little bit of refactoring of the current Ash Postgres. Basically, like one of the things that happens with, like kind of the point of Ash is like this sort of compatibility and adapter layer between different kinds of data layers. And so one of the things that we do is we ask the data layer, like, hey, can you do this? Like, for instance, can you join these two resources? Is that something that you as a data layer know how to do? And if you can, then we're going to do things differently, right? So like, if you can join these two resources, then, and somebody says like a filter, like posts where they have a comment that got 100 likes or something, right? It's like, if the data layer can do that natively, then we'll pass it down. But if it can't, then we're going to synthesize that. We're going to like go to the comments and like find the IDs that match, you know what I mean? So like, we basically like, we have this sort of, this can pattern between the data layers that the core will use to figure out how to use that data layer. And so in that regard, we're going to need like, you know, Ash, Ash, SQLite, Ash MySQL or whatever, so that we can sort of ask like, you know, hey, what what of these things do you support? But what we need to do is just abstract most of Ash Postgres can be shared. It's like this sort of expression builder that just takes our queries and turns them into, into Ecto queries. And so most of it can be shared. We just have to do that work. It's, it's not too big of a project. What other kind of like data layers are you looking at? You, you mentioned somebody else built the Apache one. I forgot the name already now. Yeah, well, so that, that one's not a data layer that is on the other side of it. The Thrift one will generate like Thrift definitions like API definitions, and then start your app to communicate with your resources. So I there's we have Ash Postgres built in. There's there's a sort of the data the simple data layer. It's a default data layer that's just in memory, not even not in like ETS or anything. Like it's just a like an Elixir list that you're expected to give us, and we will maybe transform it and give it back or something like that. And then we have the ETS and the Amnesia data layers that are built in. And and you know to the point of supporting those, they're not very complicated data layers. Like we explicitly say, like don't use these for like large pieces of data. These are more designed at the moment for testing different conditions and you know sort of prototyping. So they they need more work, I think, before I would say like before it's a good idea to put them through a heavy workload or anything like that. But additionally, there's a, it's not published yet. It's on GitHub, but it's not published on Hex or anything. There's a Ash JSON API wrapper data layer where you basically give it like a sort of mapping to another API and then re- requests against it will use that separate third-party API. So like I use that, for example, to, to scrape hacker news, right? Like I define, you know, there's a thing called top stories and then there's a thing called story and and user and, and I define how they map to the API. And then I can just say like, give me all the top stories and it'll connect all the dots and make all the requests that are necessary. And actually somebody at uh, Alembic, the company which I mean, you know, I didn't, I work in a company called Alembic. We're an agency. Maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But they've got people who are building things for Ash as well. And they built Ash Gen Server, which is a data layer that whenever you create an instance of, whenever you create one of the things, it starts a Gen Server with the state. And whenever you update it, it 
modifies the state of the gen server. And whenever you destroy it, it shuts down the gen server, which is a very interesting pattern. So they use that for like running things like a sort of game server type state where you want to start it up, make some modifications, and then eventually shut it down. Yeah, I mean, you're basically building like a kind of common common API and then just kind of swap out certain things that you want to do. It's, it's very interesting and seems, I mean, if people are just building all kinds of stuff, it's very easy, the interfaces. I mean, you're making use of protocols to make this kind of happen? There's actually very few protocols if any, actually, in Ash Core. And the, the reason for that, though, is because we work on modules, not structs, right? So basically, we use behaviors, I guess, is the, is the main thing. We use, primarily, we use behaviors, which are, you know, kind of like singleton protocols, really. They're, you know, almost the same, same thing in, in, in some ways. So if you wanted to write, like, a data layer, you implement a specific behavior. If you wanted to write a notifier, you implement a specific behavior, that kind of thing. Oh, uh, yeah, behaviors are the right one. I was confused between behaviors and protocols. I, I don't, I think I write more behaviors. I think protocols are not really done too much except for certain things like like where you can, like the two param, I think is done with a protocol, the derive, like you derive protocols, I believe. Yeah, I mean, protocols operate on data, is you know, so, and I think protocols are the more interesting of them because they add a, a sort of second dimension to that equation, right? So if you have like a behavior like, an ecto adapter is a behavior, right? And what that means is like, you know, we're going to call a module, we're going to call these specific functions on a module. But you can add a sort of second dimension if it was a protocol, where there's some sort of piece of data that where you call that function with like a known piece of data and and a known function. And that means you have a lot, you can have like a lot of flexibility, like somebody could change that data object and then call your function again, right? And so that's kind of why, you know, two param and things like that are implemented that way. And I'll talk a little bit later, I think I'll talk about Ash authentication, which is coming up and is going to blow everybody's minds. But that also uses uses protocols for one of its sort of it has like a list of what you call a strategy and each strategy builds a struct and so you can add custom strategies and then you implement the sort of various callbacks as protocol implementations actually uh i was just thinking off the top of my head okay this is cool if you go to the ash framework website it's kind of interesting that you are specifically calling out something very what was it Maybe I remember something here. I was just reading it today. Or is it? Ah, this one. The uh, the title of the section is Ash is more than it appears. And Ash is more than just auto-generate API and admin UI. Like, are those basically the two things that you think that people, when they see Ash, is like what they think about? That's why you had to kind of pull this out specifically? Yeah, I mean, what happens generally is people see Ash and they think, okay, they think it looks like things they've seen before. It looks like maybe active record and active admin. And so they think that's what it's for. But ultimately, it looks like that because like those are the that's the 80 percent you know talk about the 80 20 earlier right that's the 80 percent that people like need first or are most commonly need and so are the extensions that we have that exist sort of like you know in core like dash graphql and stuff like that but ash is really the simple resource pattern and tools to write your own extensions it's kind of like a build your own framework a set of tooling it just so happens that we have sort of obvious answers that fall out in terms of like how you would build a graphql extension so that everybody doesn't have to do their own Right. So yeah, that, that people definitely like we have the, that's one of the biggest not like problems, but biggest things that happens when I have conversation with somebody who hasn't used Ash is they they kind of like they look at some of the examples and they think, okay, I know what that is. And then they think, well, I don't really want th that thing that I think it is. So I'll move on, which is fine. You got to use heuristics like that to figure out what you're going to do with your time. So I don't hold it against anybody. But we do want to try to communicate better what it is and what you might use it for. So that the people who might be interested, when they understand it, they will have a chance to use it. Yeah, but I also kind of wonder if that's maybe a nice way to get people into Ash itself, right? Because I think there. Do you also come from the Rails background too? I think a lot of people did. Yeah, a long time ago, I did some Rails. Okay. I, I didn't. 
I, I, I mean, it's hard to explain. I, I liked it because it was like my first programming language. And so I was like, yeah. wow, I could do so many cool mm-hmm. things. But when I moved on to functional programming, like that's kind of like, I get a little sad when people are like, oh, this looks like active record. And I'm like, mm, I didn't want to make active record. It's not like active record, you know, like, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I, I mean, they call that, you know, that create with a bang at the end is, but the, first of all, Elixir is a lot of stuff borrowed from Ruby too, right? So it's not like it's necessarily a bad thing. Active Record still has a, a nice place in my heart. But yeah, I mean, it's okay. I think the, the difficult thing is that it's a mixed bag, right? So when somebody says it's like Active Record, it's like, well, in what way are you thinking it might be like Active Record? Because there's some ways that would be, an, you know, quite the compliment, right? Because Active Record made some things really easy and it gave you like, you know, semantic ways to sort of, and, and standards around various, you know, pieces of behavior. But at the same time, Active Record was very tied. It was an ORM, right? So it's very sort of tied to specifically mapping things to things directly to data, that kind of thing. And it also had, you know, had a lot of sort of just general OO problems, right? Like we're trying to sort of get away from the way that state was managed and manipulated. And, and so it's one of those things, like sometimes somebody says it's like Active Record and they mean this looks convenient or and like it provides a standard set of ways to interact with data. And it does. But sometimes they say it and they're like, it looks like it's good. They say it's like active record. It's going to lock me into certain patterns that aren't healthy in the long run. And that's when I'm like, well, in that way, they aren't really the same. So the reason I wanted to ask about that is because uh, the one thing that I did like a lot about at least the Rails Ruby community was that there was always, there was at least two or three like admin panels that you could just kind of like, you know, add very quickly. And it was helpful because, you know, all of your customers are always saying, oh, we need, you know, we need to manage all the stuff and we don't want to, <laughs> it could be really cheap, right? And that's something I think that could get people in the door, at least for using Ash, because it is so different and, and it's not really covered by a lot of tutorials at the moment. People aren't saying, oh, you know, there's a Phoenix app. Okay, here's how you add Ash to it. I haven't seen anything yet. I'm not saying there's none, but I just haven't seen it come out so much. So, I mean, getting people in the door with a very nice admin panel, I think could could help it and say, "Mm, actually, it does have more than this. Okay, maybe I can try GraphQL because I do want an API. Oh, this is really simple. Okay, maybe I can actually clean up some of my code because that's actually one of the other things too that I really like about Ash is like, it seems like it can clean up a lot of stuff, like a lot of what I would call, maybe it's not the right word, boilerplate, you know, the long form written, all these business rules that you basically are, are doing, right? And you're shaking your head yes, probably because this is what Ash is all about, right? Trying to encapsulate all these kind of business rules and stuff. Yeah, it's actually encapsulating business rules and business logic is a really nebulous topic, right? And I think there's a lot of senior engineers who hear the idea of, oh, you're going to encapsulate my business logic. And they're like, they know that that's a sort of fluffy term that it's like, doesn't re- I mean, it, it means something in a way, but it's also like, you know, business logic is where do you draw that line? And how do you talk about what business logic is and that kind of thing. But in terms of like reducing boilerplate, it's it's just a sort of natural flow on from the pattern of declaring what you want to happen and allowing implementation of said thing to, to live elsewhere is it just naturally it's the same right reason like if you had to write the procedural code that would go and fetch all the data for a SQL query, that would be insane right? Like it's, there's so much, if you, you know, your SQL query, like select star from table is tiny, but the actual code, if you hand wrote that to actually read data on disk would be wild by comparison. And so these declarative patterns have that reductive effect. And then it's a matter of, of it kind of is a complicated juggling act of how well, if your abstraction is really well fit to a specific use case, then you don't need as many escape hatches, right? Like there's no way in SQL, I mean, I guess there's kind of a way to write procedural code, you know, you can use like, 
PL, PSQL or whatever. But generally speaking, you don't need low level escape hatches. But for Ash, because we have we're open ended on both ends, like anything might be want to want to use it, and it might call out to any other thing. So we have a this sort of many tiered, many faceted escape hatch uh, system where like you can configure it at a bunch of different levels to to you know call your custom code or do your custom thing. But but yeah, so we definitely we we get rid of a lot of boiler, boilerplate unnecessary stuff, and we do help sort of. I would say we help you design your domain by giving like good tools for for sort of domain design and for modeling, but we don't necessarily put forth any like specific ways that you must define your business logic. It's just better containers primarily. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering if because I'm seriously thinking about it because there's a couple of things like I do need to build out an admin panel and I do see that this could reduce some of my code at least, but there's I have so many like crazy logic that I need to think about sometimes. I'm just not sure if Ash can actually handle it. Like, is there anything that Ash may struggle with that I should consider? Because like I said, I have a lot of like weird things I need to handle, like a couple of multis I need to handle. Would that be a, a problem to to do this kind of stuff? Well, like, honestly, no. There's really, there's, you know, the way that it kind of works, like you can write a resource with no data layer and has what's called a manual action. And what that means is you are just given a Ash change set and you're saying like, do something with this, or you're given an Ash query and it's like, do something with this, right? And you can do whatever you want. And so if you were to write a, you know, you have your crazy multi-function and you're like, I can't think of a good way, like, there, you know, this doesn't fit with an Ash pattern that exists. You could just write a manual action and you provide, you give it a, a function effectively and do whatever you want. And you're just, your job is to just return what the action expects you to return. So like if it's a, if it's a read action, your job is to return a list of records. If it's a create action, then your job is to return a single record and you do whatever you want then. The, the thing that, and, and I would say the other sort of aspect of it is like Ash isn't meant to, there's a reason that like Ash is a framework insofar as it does invert control flow once you call it. So like if you hook it up to an API or something like that, Ash calls your code. And that's the def- like that's the, the defining line between a framework and a library. A library is something you call and a framework is something that calls your code. And but at the same time, it's not meant to be sort of like it's not meant to be the only thing that wraps your stuff, right? So, you know, for instance, you know, I'm one of one of our clients now is using Ash framework. They've been using it for a long time, actually. Coinbits. They're really interesting. I tell everybody to take a look at them. But they're they, for example, they have a bunch of stuff implemented as Ash resources, but then they also have like Oban jobs that do fully custom things. And sometimes they go they use their ecto repo and go straight through to the database because there's no like, you know, there's not support for like bulk actions. Like you can't bulk create using Ash, right? Yet. I'm working I'm actually working on that right now. But so like in that way, it's like it's not we don't stop you from just writing a Phoenix controller or adding a new absinthe query, or adding a custom resource, or just doing other code, right? Like, your Ash stuff is going to be just like, you know, one or two folders in an otherwise larger Elixir app. So you can kind of, you know, at that point, it's like, if you can find a good way to fit it in using the various tools we provide, then go for it. And if you can't, you're not really punished, except naturally, there's a lot of conveniences if you can. But like, you weren't going to get those conveniences before Ash existed anyway. So it's not really a punishment to say, if you have to do something that doesn't fit, you have to handwrite it because that was always what you were going to have to do otherwise. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just, I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code 
or some of the other stuff that Bob has done. Check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question, and then we'll just rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. I'm just taking a look at the GraphQL one because I think that this is something that we're actually using right now because we have like a traditional backend uh, written in Elixir and frontend written in a basically what do you call those the spa mm-hmm. this is, this is pretty cool i'm just thinking maybe like uh, something's coming to my mind is like is there a way that i could safely start to add ashen to my system and just kind of see how i feel like because if i have something traditionally built with phoenix in the way that the team kind of has been pushing people i need to kind of play to see if this is really something that we'd like to use yeah i mean absolutely so because there's so many different layers that you can use ash with and because you can have swap the back end of it of an individual resource with whatever you want. Like you can use the Ash Postgres data layer, or for example, you could just call a context that you have defined in code elsewhere, right? Like you could write an action that just calls existing contexts because you you know you think that's a better way to build an API because now you can sort of just change your resources or, or something like that, right? And that, in fact, people have done that. People have, they've used Ash to build a sort of strangler pattern over old things, like this old framework tool that they were using. And incrementally, like they added more and more Ash resources. And at first, they were calling functions from like their old code. And then over time, they would remove the manual actions that were calling something else and instead have them go straight to the data layer that they were intending to sort of manipulate. And so, you know, you can you can absolutely sort of incrementally adopt it. Or even just like if there is some part of your system that you think will play nicely or that, that you know, you have some amount of confidence of, right? You say you're skeptical for its use in X, Y, or Z, but you do have this one nice little thing. It's like, there's nothing that stops you from using it for just that. It doesn't, it's not an all or nothing sort of proposition. I mean, what happens though, and this is, it's almost like sort of, we have a sort of lock-in effect, which is that you realize the cost of writing the things that Ash does for you. And you're like, I don't want to do that. So you try to get everything into resources. Like, but that's not that's not actually lock in. That's just they're really convenient. So like you know you when you stand up your admin UI or you stand up a GraphQL, it's nice because it takes like three lines of code to have a fully functioning GraphQL. And so you're like, I don't want to handwrite this again. And so you find ways to to build it out as Ash resources. But you know again, that's not lock in as in we want to keep you stuck in resources. They're just actually like really convenient. So so it's basically like super addictive, right? With how simple everything kind of works. Yeah, I mean 
especially when it comes to like, and this is, Ash knows about, this is the point of resources being the way that they are. So like Ash GraphQL, for example, if you, in, you know, you can see on the website, there's that little GraphQL example. And, you know, you say like, you give it a type and you could add a single query that's like a list query to list all of the records. What that will add, that's going to give you arguments for filtering, limiting, sorting. There's pagination built into Ash. So you can paginate like natively. You don't have to change anything. That like one line of code will build an API that can use that action. And this, the filters that it does supports like, you know, and and or, like nested and or uh, Boolean filters over the resource. And it re- and if you add calculated attributes, right? Like, so they're called calculations, they'll just be able to filter on them if, if, they're, if they meet certain criteria. Like you can't filter over like a in-memory calculation because we have to fetch the data before, you know what I mean? But if, if you have a calculation that can be filtered on because it, it uses an expression, which means it'll go to the data layer, then it'll just be filterable and sortable. And there's an option, you just say relay true, and now you have a relay compliant API, right? For anybody who cares about that kind of thing, like not many people do, but if you really care, if you got big data or whatever, and you want to use relay, you can do that. And so basically because it's also integrated and because we know about the things that the resource can do, it's all declared. We can build these really good APIs, like in, in, no, in no time flat. So it already has the GraphQL already has pagination built in. You're saying, yeah. So that's it, it's implemented at the action level. So in the action, you say, what are the rules for paginating this resource, right? And so when you call that res- that action, if you say, like for instance, that this action requires pagination, has a maximum page size of fifty, you can we have key set and offset pagination. So key set pagination gives you like a sort of cursor style pagination, which, you know, has some limitations, right? Like you can't, can't answer how many there are. Well, you kind of can. But the point is, there's two different strategies of pagination built in to solve for different scales of data and different strat and different ways you want to access it. And you build it into the action. And that means when somebody in your app actually calls that action, they're going to get back like a page struct, and then they can paginate through it using our page utilities, like you could be the next page, right? And then in the API as well, any API that uses that action, it's going to have that same behavior. And so you get this like really consistent access interface. And of course, like, you know, if you want, you're like, well, okay, I want a version of this that doesn't paginate, you can add another action and only use that in your code base and not use it and, you know, not expose it over the API. So like you have, it's not like you're sort of locked in that you can only do what your APIs can do. You can add more actions and not put them in any API or something like that. But the level of consistency is great. You can basically, you don't even need to test your GraphQL API. No, that's a lie. I'm going to test your APIs. But in, in a lot of ways, like if the action works, right? There's very little things that can go wrong in, in the mapping from a GraphQL to the action, because the action is where all of the all of the rules live. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. Okay. And I'll add something here too. One of the things that I think that one of the reasons that I think Ash can be really powerful for people, and this is people almost have like this sort of aha moment. It's a really difficult thing when we're building software, we have these sort of nebulous future things that might need to happen. Like we think to ourselves, we started off and we're building, let's say we're building with live view and we're like, you know what? I'm not going to need an API. So I'm just going to have my live views call into my contexts and or what or call, you know, maybe even use Ecto schemas directly, whatever it is, right? We think to ourselves, okay, that's how we're going to do this. And but then like later, a year from now, you're like, we have an integration partner and they need to access all of the data that are that runs our application so that they can integrate with us. And it's like, okay, well, now we need an API. And you don't have any reusable structure at all. Like maybe you have your context functions. And so then what you do is you write a bunch of Phoenix controllers, if you want a REST API, that call into your context functions. 
and you replicate a bunch of the rules. You replicate a bunch of the concepts that exist in your application up into these Phoenix controllers. Like, what are the things I accept? How do I query? How do I filter? How do I sort? And then you map it to like a, a view, which is like, what are all the fields that we show in this response, right? And then a year down the road, somebody's like, oh, you know what? We actually need a GraphQL also. And so you go write a bunch of GraphQL resolvers and you replicate what are the, you know, so that you can put them in the absence types. What are the fields that are on this thing? And, and at the end of the day, people will tell you that that's more flexible. And in, in some ways, it is more flexible because you can, you can make some changes, you know, some disparate changes between these two things without having to worry about how they affect other things. But you've really locked yourself into like the way all of these things work at like, and like four different integration points that have expectations on the way the, your application works internally. And so Bugs go unfixed silently because you don't realize you broke the, the JSON API by changing your context functions or whatever. And so with Ash, people have that, that they, they run, that experience goes the opposite direction where they they like, okay, I want to build, I'm building a live view. And they're like, okay, so they build out some Ash resources and they add some actions that do sort of semantic things. And then what, what they find out you know, if they find out what they've done sort of wrong, instead of somebody says, we need a JSON API, they're like, oh, you know what? I'm doing too much in my live view. And so they put stuff down into the Ash resource. But other than that, you know, all you need to do is just hook up the API directly to the resource. And you, you can get like, and this is, I've done this, you can get API endpoints in like a day for like all of your resources. It's not complicated. It's documented. There's simple rules for how you hook them up. And now you have like, a complete API for all of your resources. So you kind of almost find, oh, I should have put more in the resources and you start bringing things, you know, lowering them down into the actions. But, and then, you know, you think, okay, you know what? Oh, we need policies now because we're not, we're out of the prototype phase and we need to work up, like we need to protect these from certain, you know, certain user types need to do certain things. And it's like, okay, well, you could add a whole nother like subsystem or you could just use Ash policies, right? So it grows at a more linear progression than like the way that code explodes over time as you realize you need new you need new behaviors and you don't want to modify all of the stuff you've done already to add these new behaviors so you just replicate tons of the stuff that you've done into new layers and at some point you end up in that cruft situation that startups complain about all the time where oh, we're four years in and we got to rewrite or we're seven years in and we got to rewrite right and i think a big driver of that is this sort of explosion and proliferation of the rules and how your app works into like every different subsystem you build because you didn't have a standard core uh, that you can use from each of those subsystem subsystems okay yeah i mean i i think you're definitely hitting on a lot of of stuff right I mean, I, I know for sure I have a uh, quite a few complicated queries in Ecto that I would need to transfer over. That's something I, I worry about doing. But I suppose it, since you're wrapping around Ecto, it shouldn't be too difficult to do some of these things at least. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Like you, I would be lying if I said that like you. That's not one of the harder things to figure out, right? Like, it, and most of the time it's doable, especially because we have fragment support that will pass through yeah. a fragment to Ecto, and so it's like you know if you. If you really got to do something crazy, you can write raw, the raw SQL under the hood and, you know, use write a fragment, right? But given the fact that you have manual actions and you also have, there's a deep, there's a like a, I call it like a sharp edge escape hatch, right? Like you have, you know, like if you're going to use this, you need to write, write some tests around all the different ways you might, it might get encountered, you know, that kind of thing. But there's a modify data layer query, I think is what it's called, or modify query, where you're just going to get whatever the data layer the data layer is responsible for building up a query over time. In Ecto and Ash Postgres's case, that is a Ecto query. And so at, right before it runs the query, you're given the query and you just return something else for it to run. 
And so in that way, like you can, you can make a lot of modifications if you have to, but you know, it's a pretty a deep uh, escape hatch. You generally don't need to reach for. Okay. Yeah. I mean, everything sounds good so far, right? I mean, I'm kind of throwing stuff out there. Oh, about this, about that, but I haven't given you an actual solid, like, okay, this thing right here, I, I, I don't know how to change yet, but I, like you said, I thinking about it and looking at it, I feel like there's ways that we can probably do it. Or ways I could probably do it. Now, I always like to hear the opposite side, right? You kind of hinted at one of the sides that it could be a little bit tricky to convert an Ecto query to an Ash query, I guess we can call it, right? Now, is there, is maybe you could spend more on that and also like what other kind of things should we be aware of when evaluating Ash? Because there's, Ash can't be the, the end all be all, right? Like, what is it that makes Ash, like, what, when would, it, when would Ash not quite work out for me? It's a good question. I mean, I think there's plenty of case, like, this is something that we see pretty often is people will get started with Ash and then they'll just kind of use it exactly the same way that Ecto would have been used. So all they ever do with it is they call actions from controllers and, or they call actions from like a live view. And that's the only thing that they ever do. They don't write authorization policies. Instead, they implement that as like, you know, their own functions or they write Phoenix contexts and then just call into Ash, right? And in that way, like Ash is never going to be as good of an Ecto as Ecto is, right? It's it's a more rigid pattern on top of Ecto. So if you're if you're just intending to interact with Ash purely as a data interactor, right? You just you think that maybe Ash schema or Ash resources would be a better thing to write than Ecto schemas. I would argue that you're not going to get nearly enough value to warrant having to learn something new and to warrant having to sort of figure out how to you know map sort of the old way you would do something to the new way. Now, with that said, we do have a lot of conveniences. We have calculations and aggregates that can like really help with some complicated things around data fetching and around, you know, like, so there's the ability to sort of get an individual record with like filtered aggregates, like how many counts, how many comments do you have that received at least 10 likes or calculated attributes that will be like lazily loaded and we can run them in memory or we can run them in the data layer, right? And so it, we have these features that are pretty cool, but I would still argue that you don't quite get enough bang for your buck because, th- and this is the common, this is the big, the biggest issue with Ash is you have to learn how it works, right? It's, there's a bunch of new, like your vocabulary expands to like, what can a resource do? How do I use it, right? And it if you're going to pay that cost, you should be getting enough tangible benefit from it. So if you're just going to use it like you're using Ecto, just use Ecto. I love Ecto. Ecto is one of my favorite libraries, probably my favorite library in the world. I think is like it's just such an amazing tool. So yeah, I think that's one big thing is that people end up they're like, oh, you know, this just doesn't feel as flexible. And I'm like, yeah, you shouldn't use it for just that. I'm surprised you didn't say that Ash is your favorite library ever. I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I mean, I think, no, Ash is, I mean, I really do like Ash, obviously. Like I, you know, I, I built it for a reason and it's, it's built up from a lot of personal experience. You know, like I got so tired of rebuilding the same crap every time I went to a new company and finding the same problems every time I went to a new job or a new project or whatever. And I just, I, I had a, an internal model of the way that these things could be built. And everybody said, you know, don't, there's a lot of advice out there that says, you know, don't try to map your internal model of the world onto your code. Like your code needs to be essentially much more modular and and piecemeal, right? And my, there's that, I was convinced there's a way to do it, which is effectively, it has to do with sort of projections of your model, right? Like the Ash resources don't do anything. And that's, that's the sort of powerful component there, right? Ash resources are just a description and that's it. It's basically like a prettier JSON, right? Or yaml right the the resources aren't alive there and so you you might call some code and give it a resource and it's just going to ask questions like hey what are your attributes 
Like, and then it's going to figure out what to do with that. What are your actions? And it's going to figure out what to do with that. And so in that way, like, it's not really a very rigid pattern. In fact, you could, you could just use resources just because you like the description. And then you could pass resources into your own functions that are like, how do I get one of these from the database? If you like, don't like the way that we do it. But yeah, so the point is, Ash is my favorite in that way, but I think it's would be very proud to oh you know my own stuff is my favorite. It's like it's like an artist saying that their own music is their favorite music or something, right? Like that'd be kind of a bit weird. Yeah, it's a bit weird, but I mean, you're you're definitely making some really bold claims with it, and you I don't feel like you're somebody who just you know makes claims without some kind of you know backup, right? You, you've thought about it. I mean, you you've planned this out. It's you got a company backing you. You said you're working on this full time, right? Like this is all you're doing. Yeah, well, you know, mostly I'm working on it mostly full time. But like, you know, I, I, there's other ways I can add value, like helping out with their other projects. And I'm also sure. on projects that are for clients that are using Ash Framework as well. And so I stay in the Ash sort of realm primarily. Mm-hmm. But you know, I would say like you know, fifty seventy five percent of my time in any given week is is Ash Framework stuff. I mean, if somebody's like paying you at least some percentage of time just to work on something like this, then it, it must be really useful or else, you know, it's a company in the end, right? They, they put money in because they see more value coming out, right? So it's, it's interesting to see yeah. that. So Josh is a technical director at, at Alembic. And he's the one that, that hired me. And I think we really vibed. So he, he found me first and we, we had a sort of relationship through the Discord of like they were using Ash before they brought me on. To, for some of their projects because Josh found it and, and really thought that it could be a powerful pattern for them. And he, I think, really sees the long-term vision of what it could be, right? So what it is now, I think all, it's already extremely useful and I would never build a web application without using like Phoenix and Ash as my two main components, right? But he sees what it can be and I think that's where, that's the real sort of special sauce, right? And I think on that front, I'll talk a little bit about Ash authentication. So James Harton at, at Alembic has taken on over the last, you know, a couple of weeks or so, maybe maybe longer, actually, maybe a month. But he's taken on a really big project, something that people have been asking for for a long time, which is for Ash to have a sort of native authentication solution. So what we would have what you the way this does happen, the way this works right now, there's two ways that you do it. You either go to Ash HQ. So Ash, the website that you're looking at, you can log into that that website. It doesn't really give you anything, but you can log into it. We're going to add like some features around that. But so, but the important thing is what people do is they either go to the source code for that and they copy <laughs> the authentication code that I wrote, or which is essentially, or they do this, which is the same thing I did. They run mix Phoenix Gen auth and they go in and they update all the things that would have used an Ecto you know query instead to use an Ash query and call into their Ash resources, which is actually quite cumbersome. It's it's a it's a big pain. And so going from there, I I knew that we could do like a much better job, you know, for Ash users on authentication. And I don't want to I think I don't want to I don't think that Phoenix Gen Auth is the right way to go about this problem. Personally, I don't want to disparage. I think it's a very, you know, the, the code that it generates for you is very high quality and it's very well thought out. So that's, I'm not disparaging the authors of that. But to me, code generation is kind of a step back, right? Like what happens when there's a security vulnerability that we find in Phoenix Gen Auth and you're like, you know, three Phoenix versions behind and, you know, you it's like you've modified all of your Phoenix Gen Auth code so much. How do, how do the people, like, how do you get that fixed? How do you patch that security vulnerability? Or it's just, you can't expand said generated code nicely. Like we add a new feature to Phoenix Gen Auth that supports some other kind of token revocation strategy or something, right? And it's like, well, 
I can't just like regenerate because I've modified this code in some way, right? So I just think code generation is the wrong way to go about it personally. And so that leads us into Ash authentication, which is coming out. I'm so excited about Ash authentication. It's coming out so much better than I could have even hoped for. James is doing an amazing job. And the way that it works is, you know, you have, you're going to have a user resource. You can have multiple things that can be authenticated, right? But let's just start with the sort of basic example of a user resource. You add the authentication extension. You, you know, that gives you a new DSL block called authentication do, right? So you say authentication do. And then in that, you define your strategies. And your strategies can be username, password, can be OAuth2. You can have custom strategies. I think custom strategies may not be in the initial release, like the, when we sort of do the beta launch, but it, you take this really minimal amount of configuration. And, that, and because the way that it works is you, Ash extensions can do really powerful things like add attributes to the resource or add actions to the resource right programmatically like behind the scenes what that means is you could you add these to your resource and you just if you generate migrations it will add any necessary structure right and so what you get from this is like a couple lines of code and you get like a full authentication solution like now we have all these tools that know how to call your user resource to log in we have tools that operate with plug and phoenix uh he's written i think called like Ash Phoenix Authentication or Ash Authentication Phoenix, which provides a bunch of components that like automatically render all of the login strategies that you have. It's, it's really, honestly, like I'm probably not doing it justice, but it's, it's the answer that I think a lot of Ash users were looking for, which is like this declarative configuration that just like you, you, you add it and you've got authentication and it's, it's flexible, it works well, and you don't have to maintain a bunch of generated code. So I'm, I'm really excited about, about that. Is that the Ash Auth? Uh, repo that's been archived. No, that that one. Yeah, it's you might be able to find it, but I'm not going to tell you how because they're not ready to they're not ready to launch it. But that was like an old. I, that was me. I made a skeleton of that, you know, or like I thought I was going to do that a while back, and then I just had other priorities, and so I just archived the repo because I was like, okay, I'm going to leave this for later. And then luckily for me, somebody else is doing all that really hard work and thinking about all those really gnarly patterns. Yeah, I was just thinking something that I'm kind of curious about if this is able to be supported or not. I have like a multi-step form where, so actually there's two types of ways. Like one is that we have a REST API endpoint where we accept data in a certain format. So I think it's in like camel case, but then of course, usually you want that to be as a struct in lower snake case, right? So that's that's one problem. Also, some fields may be different. So I need to kind of handle that issue. Actually, Actually, this is it. Some, everything is kind of flat. It's not like like embedded or what you call it, where you have like because I have resources that are spread across. So when you do one post request to request to create something, it's going to end up creating two more tables that are actually linked to each other. But initially, all the data is like flat. That's one issue I have. Another one is that for the same resource, I want to be able to do the same thing, but with a form. So we have API access for the same thing, and also a form that does the same thing. But the form is actually multi-step. And on the form, what I'm doing is as you're typing stuff up with LiveView, we're actually checking some validations. And for like telephone numbers, we like check to make sure that you fill out a certain format. That's one thing. And then once you click on submit, then we're actually going to try to actually check with Twilio, is this actually a real number? So like this kind of complication are two things that I'm not too sure can be handled by astronaut, but I'm guessing you're probably going to say it could be. And that would be interesting to see how that would be done. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a couple answers, right? So like, you know, I mean, I guess, if it isn't obvious by now, because of the way, I, you know, there's always a couple ways to do things like Ash doesn't take that sort of like, there's one exactly right way to do thing, right? It's a toolbox. So there's a lot, there's different ways you could do anything you want to do. In terms of multi, well, let, let's, I'll start off with like, just sort of the, you know, you have flat things, and then you ultimately want to create multiple things. That's, that's super easy, right? So like, in Ash, instead of having virtual 
fields like you would in an ecto schema or something like that you have actions can take arguments and so an argument is declared the same way as an attribute but it's declared in the action and so you say like you know argument foo argument bar and those are like and then you could write a, a custom change which is like a plug which just you know points to a module that defines a change function kind of like how plug defines a call function right um, and you get a change set and you return a change set so you could then access those arguments and add a hook to the change set that says like you know at, you know, ash.changeset.afteraction, basically, where you, you return a change set with a hook on it that says, after this action is run, create some related thing with using these argument values. And so you can sort of unnest or do whatever you want in that way. So that, that one's definitely not a problem. For multi-step forms, that's kind of interesting, right? So it kind of depends a little bit on the user experience that you want, like exactly how you'd want to implement it. You can do it with actions actually relatively easily because you can conditionally run validations, run individual validations. The way it works is you'd say you can add a, a where option. So you'd say like validate that X is present, for example. So there's built-in validations. You could put in your own custom validations, but then you can say where and provide like another validation. And if that validation passes, then this validation applies. If that validation fails, then this validation doesn't apply, right? So you could support an argument that is like, what step of the form are you on, right? And then you could only run certain validations if they're on a specific stage of the form. And then if the argument isn't provided, then you just do the whole flow, right? And then in that way, you can have the API use the same action as the as the form. But in this, it, you know, on the sort of flip side of that, you could actually have, it's then now you've abstracted that logic into support actually like a multi-stage API workflow as well, right? Where you, su you supply the values and then you, you could say, you know, you could do that same Sim, you know, simulated or multi-step thing over the API. Not that you would want to, but the point is that like you've sort of removed web versus app layer from it and put that into an action. There's other things there. There's a thing called ash.flow, which probably don't have time to get into, but ash.flow is a declarative workflow builder that is like resource aware. And in that way, you can actually have haltable flows. And we're going to be building out a thing called ash.flow form at some point, which is a thing designed to work with Phoenix forms that will run a flow and supports multi-flow forms and also supports determining whether or not you're moving on to the next stage of the form. So you'd basically like clicking the next button, you'd you just update the stage, update the, you know, what stage of the multi-flow form I'm on. And then you'd run the flow again and it would halt at a different point and you'd get back to the state. So then you can recall the same flow with the same state and you know, or with new arguments. It's a whole it's a it's a bit it's a whole thing. We got to figure out exactly how it's gonna work. But ash.flow itself exists and it works. It works great now. Um, I use it for the search on Ash HQ, so you can see the source code for that because Ash HQ is open source. So yeah, there's there's a lot of different answers. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I I think I just need to play. I'm already thinking about how I can at least do a small project and see how I feel, and maybe I'll be I'll be uh, I'll be chugging Kool Aid after that. I don't know. Let's see how the experience will be like. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Like I I've never been one to like like I really don't want to talk you into using or talk anybody. Like I don't want to convince anybody against their better, you know, judgment to use Ash. That's never really been my style. Like I believe in the design patterns and I believe in the tools we're building. And so that's the way reason I talk the way that I do. But you know, it would be insane to say like, oh, this is the best way to do anything. Like, like you talked about earlier, right? Like there's obviously going to be reasons not to use it. And so like, realistically, I think one of the difficult things is you almost it's difficult to realize the benefits of Ash until you're like a couple months into a project and you have new changing requirements and the ability to extend your model and write custom extensions and all these sorts of things. It, it, so you see people who have been using Ash for a long time find a lot of success in that regard because it ages gracefully. 
but in the first month, you know, you're going to, it's going to be like a learning process. You're not going to understand X, Y, and Z and stuff. So like, I think that's fine. But depending on what you go into like a test project with, or like if you, you know, it might not seem all that useful, which is fine, but that's kind of a common thing that happens is that's when I talk about people using it like Ecto is they sort of use it like something they know about and they don't have a bunch of different requirements. They're just writing a little toy app. And then they're like, yeah, this is less, this isn't as good as Ecto. And it's like, well, yeah, writing toys isn't really like the target audience, I guess, for Ash. Yeah, but you do have to give it a try first, something small before you, you think about it. And then, yeah, I, it's it's kind of hard because you can't say, okay, this is a huge project. You have a short timeline. Learn this new thing. It's going to help you. It's like, well, uh, you know, it's it's a very, it's like one of the worst times to do it, right? But I, I understand what totally. you're saying. Like, it's, you can't choose something small. You're not going to see the benefit maybe. But once you get into it, and you do at least a couple, maybe three to five small projects, and maybe you'll, you'll start to see the the usefulness of it, right? Yeah, and I think I think you're right. Like, I, it's a chicken and the egg problem there, and I don't want to tell anybody like go and jump in blind and build your next, you know, mission critical business application without having any idea how Ash works, you know. But I think that's why we see a sort of slow burn style of adoption, really which is that like as the Ash tool chain grows, people encounter problems and they're looking around for like, you know, what solutions exist for these sorts of things. And one of the things, that, you know, in Ash, a lot of those problems either don't exist or we have a specific answer to them and or there's like extension tools for you to write your own. And so it's kind of, you see this slow burn adoption of like somebody implements something, they, they see Ash, they try it out. They're like, that's interesting. There's all these things I don't imagine that I would use. And then they're like, okay, then they go back to work and they're building something and they're like, oh man, there's that Ash feature that I could just sort of do this. I could just use that little Ash feature and I wouldn't have to write all this code that I'm writing. And so in a lot of ways, it's like people adopt Ash like a year or two after discovering it because once you know what's on the what's on the portfolio, you know, then you're, it's in the back of your mind as you're building new things and you're like, man, it would be nice if there was something that just did all this sort of in an integrated way. So I think that's a common story with Ash. Yeah, I find myself duplicating a lot of things, not to mention like, it's like, yeah, I need a list. And to be honest, the list, uh, the list, when I'm talking about lists, I mean like that default context list kind of thing. But I don't always mm-hmm. just like need that. Like I could, sometimes I want to pagination. I mean, there's a lot of things it's, I feel like, yeah, I'm doing a lot of copying and pasting or, or relying on the default, you know, resource generation. So, yeah, that's what I said. But, you know, it, it could be interesting. It could be worth it. It would be, I, I just have to try it. I mean, there's no other way to say it. I have to try it, like you said, a couple, or like we like we kind of were talking about a couple of times to see how it is. I, I can't imagine it being a bad thing. I, I think it's just going to be, like you said, it's, you need to get into it. You can't just, you know, start using it. You have to do it for a while and just start adding on stuff and kind of seeing the benefits of it. And I think it's also uh, maybe it's, it's going to be the hero syndrome, which is what I'm going to call it. You know, where it's like something's broken and then you find you you found Ash will fix the problem for you. And you're like, OK, this is awesome. I, I love it now. <laughs> you know, yeah. once you're in trouble yep. and it bails you out, then you're like, OK, I love it. Yeah. And for what it's worth, now is the best time to try it out because we are out of the sort of like move fast and break things phase that we were in for a long time. And 2.0 really marks that separation which I, I've actually told this story on a different podcast about 2.0 is actually the 1.0. I accidentally published 1.0. And I was like 28 hours after I published it, I asked the Hex team like, hey, can I undo this? And they were like 24 hour limit. And so I'm like, all right, I guess we're 1.0, you know. So 2.0 is really 1.0. And we wrote like, it, you know, if you, if you look in the documentation, there are tons of guides 
like, and this is what was always missing for a long time. The biggest criticism people had is they're like, honestly, I can tell that Ash does all sorts of things, but I have no idea how to figure out what those things are or how I might use them or how they play together. Because it was just like a bunch of module docs that were context specific. There was no like overarching anything. But now there's like, there's tons. And like, if you go in and you like go to the docs and you click on the little plus button up in the top left, you can see like, like if you click on documentation, I don't know if you're on the site, it doesn't really matter. But um, in the, you click that plus button, you can select a bunch of different libraries that we built and we're going to be adding more over time uh these are the sort of extensions that exist and you can select versions it's kind of like a hex docs i would say an alternative you still want hex docs but like this is good if you want to view holistic docs for all of the ash projects and so with that you can view all the docs for ash json api ash graphql ash phoenix all that stuff together in the same place and they all have guides and they all have been sort of curated now so there's sort of endless reading (laughs) You know, if you if you're interested, it's so it's a good time to try it out. Okay, so so that's something I I wish it had, and I'm not surprised you don't have it. Which is you have Ash CSV, but I always get asked for Excel. So if you had Ash Excel, that would be nice. But that's could be a little bit trickier I'll, to do. No, I'll write it for you tonight. <laughs> <laughs> good luck, <laughs> good luck with that one. We're working on that right now for for something, especially to do multi sheets, etc. It's so complicated. But yeah, yeah I, I, I agree. Cool. Yeah. CSV is is uh, quite simple and and honestly like uh, very few people are using it. I'm actually using the CSV data layer in Ash HQ. The blog is using a data layer called Ash Blog and the tags are stored in a CSV file. So I'm actually getting creative with uh, data layers for the Ash HQ blog. That's interesting. Is is it kind of like well I have to use this package because I spent all this time on it, so you just try to find uses for it or or it just kind of just worked out? I'm kind of curious why you did it like that. Yeah, I mean at you know at first I wouldn't normally handwrite a blog at all. I value my time a lot more than that, you know, or like I know how to write a blog. And so there's not much there's not much of a learning experience for me in that regard. So I my personal blog is like it's like a ghost blog. I hosted on a droplet for like five bucks a month or something. And so but if I'm going to hand write it, I'm going to do it for Ash. And more more of the reason for that is mostly synergies, right? Like Ash has a crap ton of tools and I want to use those. I don't want to hand write everything else. I guess just that's the sort of natural effect, right? And Ash HQ is also meant to sort of be a reference implementation. So like I want to do things in, in as much of the Ash way also for that reason, which is I want people to be when they're thinking like, how, you know, how, how, okay, I want to store this in markdown files, you know, and then, and then like now they have a, a reference for how they might do that. Not to mention the fact that the Ash admin and UI supports configuring fields as markdown fields. And so when I want to edit the blog, I can actually go in and open up Ash Admin. I, it's all committed to the GitHub repo, but I open Ash Admin locally. Like I start the app, edit the blog in place, hit save, and then commit it all. So I, it, you know, it's all those tools that I didn't that I wanted to use together. Okay, yeah, I think we're basically approaching our time. It's it's uh, about half past minute over here for me. I'm in Hong Kong, so yeah, I saw your eyes grow wow. bigger. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> no worries. I think we went over quite a bit too. So yeah, I think we can transition over to picks unless there's something else you wanted to announce. You, you did announce, uh, you, you want to talk about policies, I think you went over policies, authentication. Is there anything else that you wanted to go over before we transition over to picks? No, I have a, some shout outs I want to do, but I'll do those as part of the picks. That'll be my first pick. Okay, cool. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have, 
two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. Well, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current, keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The, the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. So, pick. Okay, you just usually let the guests go last since it's I'm the only one here. Yeah, I'm going to pick something called AWS in action. So I've been trying to get more and more into AWS. Super complicated thing. At least for me, I never really have time to kind of read all the stuff. And every time I ask support, they're always like, okay, you want to know how to do this? Here, read this. 5,000 page link. It's like, okay, who the hell's got time for that? I started reading the book that that's the third edition, I believe, and it's coming out still. Uh, it's in Meep, so it's uh, early access. It's pretty good. I think it's a good book if you guys want to get into AWS and you're like me and scared of reading ridiculously long, complicated docs on AWS's website. I think it's a good kind of intro. So uh, that's my pick. How about yourself? Well, I have a couple. I, I didn't. I realized now maybe I was supposed to have one, but I'll just I'll just run through. These. You can have as many um, as you like. I'm just I just always choose one because I'm lazy. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I'm always busy with other it. things too. Right. But yeah. Okay. Well, so for me, I want to shout out. I, you know, I already mentioned James Harton working on Ash authentication. Mike Buho also at Alembic is building out open API features for Ash JSON API that'll likely have an initial release soon, which means like you know auto generated docs, auto generated client libraries, that kind of stuff. Josh Price at Alembic. He's done lots of improvements, like a live book docs generator that'll generate docs for your Ash application and mermaid charts that describe your API relationships and things like that. So they're all doing lots of great work. I have some some funner, more fun stuff. TV shows, The Good Place is amazing. I watched it again this weekend for like the third time and it's really good. You should watch it. And then for video games, Return of the Obra Dinn is an indie game about like solving a mystery at sea. Basically a pirate ship or a, a sailing ship leaves with like a crew of 30 and comes back with nobody alive and you have to figure out what happened. Amazing game. Probably the best game I've played in years. And Tactics Ogre Reborn on Switch, which is an amazing game. And it's uh, sort of re redoing of one of the best games of that genre uh, that ever came out. I'm going through it very slowly because I'm playing it in Japanese and I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I'm still learning, but I definitely would recommend that game to uh, to anybody who's interested. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for, for the picks. And it's uh, good to have you on to talk about Ash. And I think I really will consider to take a look at Ash and see how it's going this time. You got me interested because uh, I'm getting a little <laughs> bit annoyed always writing the same stuff over and over again. It'd be nice to, to have some free time again. 
Yep, absolutely. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. I, thanks for having me and letting me sort of ramble. I know we went over, but I love talking about this stuff, good. obviously. Yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.